one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 416 for the week of Monday, May 14th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Busy night, Sawyer. Busy night. Happy to be here. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. I just want to know, where did the first four months of 2012 go to? <laughs> Good question. We I were just four and a that. half. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Where who who stole my year? <laughs> yeah, really. Wow. Well, a lot of news has happened in this year so far, and we have a lot more this month so far. So let's get right into it. And our first story that we're going to get into is the launch of the Soyuz TMA 04M capsule carrying. Three members of the Expedition 3132 crew to the International Space Station. The mission successfully launched at 11.01 p.m. Eastern Time from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. The three crew members on board that will be going to the station are Flight Engineer Joe Akaba and Gennady Padalka, as well as Sergei Revin. They launch and they will meet up with the crew already on board the International Space Station with Don Pettit and Andre Kuypers, as well as Oleg Kononenko. Yeah, uh, Commander Gennady Padalka has uh, about 585 days already in uh, in space, so uh, he's going to go back up there, and it's almost like a second home to him by now. <laughs> when you spend almost two years of your life there, I'd imagine. Exactly. So um, he's probably the guy, really, to go ahead and, and learn more about, uh, you know, space adaptation sickness or something like that or or to try to figure out how quickly your body can get adapted to uh to a microgravity environment after being on earth earth for you know x amount of period of time but uh it should be kind of uh should be kind of neat to see if that's that's going to be the main thrust of uh what uh mr Bradalk is going to be up to up there well we'll find out they'll be up there for six months and we wish them a good mission godspeed Docking, by the way, is scheduled for Wednesday evening, which is when this will release on May 16th. Okay, so let's continue along now with another upcoming launch. This is a very launch-heavy week coming up. We have the Soyuz TMA-04M launching on May 15th. Also later launching on May 15th, just so you know, this was recorded on the evening of May 14th. So coming up as well is an Ariane 5 rocket from the Guiana Space Center in French Guiana, launching two communication satellites. On May 17th from Japan is an H-2A rocket carrying two Earth observation satellites. 
Also on May 17th is a Proton M rocket from Baikonur carrying the Nimix 6, which is an International Launch Services launch. Also for the third launch on May 17th from Russia is a Soyuz carrying a Cobalt, which is a Russian military defense satellite. And the big one on May 19th is the Falcon 9. And that will be launching with the Dragon capsule from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station Launch Complex 40 at 4.55 a.m. Eastern Time. And that's coming up pretty quickly now, right? Yeah, night launch. <laughs> Early morning <laughs> launch, in fact. Yep. The team is going to be down there, no? The team will indeed be down there. Mark yep. Ratterman and myself will be... In Florida at the Cape, covering the story for you guys, and we should have some great clips coming up for you next week. And this is uh, literally not just for SpaceX. I think it's fair to say, and I think Jeff Faustin, his uh, blog today, uh, had an article up there uh, saying that it's it's kind of fair to say that not only is SpaceX carrying you know their you know their reputation up on the 19th i think they're they're going to be carrying the uh, the entire reputation of the uh the cc dev program and for the commercial cargo program so the spacex launches is going to be very very critical all eyes are going to be on ksc uh, that morning so uh it'll be not only again just to to make sure that we can get you know a commercial entity that can get cargo to the iss is kind of putting the entire uh, commercial crew and commercial cargo program under a microscope. So we'll just have to have to keep our fingers crossed and and wish uh, the uh, folks over at SpaceX all the best. Indeed, mission objectives include: after launch, they will rendezvous with the International Space Station. They will then do a fly around. After performing a couple of tests to make sure that they can call off a docking, they will then, if all systems are go, come in for a docking, at which point they will not dock themselves. However, the crew aboard the International Space Station will use the station arm to grab the Dragon capsule and then mate it to the ISS. Yeah, and that's a moment of history again, too, because no other, you know, we've had uh, government entities so far visiting the ISS. This will be the very first commercial delivery for, for spaceflight. So again, if all goes well, we'll be, we'll be witnessing a moment of history. And the last vehicle, if you can remember, that docked to the Harmony nodule on the station was Atlantis, I believe, if I'm correct. Yeah, I think it was. Um, that's kind of kind of a bit of a ironic twist there. Hey, sorry, do you have the what uh, uh, this first cargo vehicle is going to be carrying up handy? I do. Going up on board the Dragon capsule will be some crew rations. There'll be food and other provisions and clothing and pantry items. They'll also be carrying up some nano racks and some cargo bags, as well as some laptops, batteries, power supply cables, making a total up mass, including packaging of 1,146 pounds or 520 kilograms. Coming down, they'll also have some flight kit items as well as certain utilization payloads and other experiments that we'll be bringing down, as well as hardware such as beds and EMU hardware for a total down mass of 1,455 pounds, including packaging, or 660 kilograms. So we made sure, we said before that it would be some non-essential items, and I think they did that. 
Yeah, it, the idea too is is just in case things get lost. Well, they they you know aren't fine. But if I recall on a previous program here, there was going to be some experiment experiment results also coming down with uh, this particular flight. Now, indeed, there are also going to be some student experiments on board, right. which we can have more for you on those next week. But there are some payloads coming back. Uh, plant signaling hardware. Uh, the Shear History Extensional Rheology Experiment hardware, and Material Science Research Rack with sample cartridge assemblies, three of those. Yeah, because, again, this is something that we're missing on shuttle. Uh, we don't have the ability to get anything back down now as a result of uh, the shuttle retirement. So Dragon and the other vehicles that are going to be following in its in its place uh, will go ahead and, and try to correct that problem. Um, I'm not too sure about Cygnus. Cygnus, I think, is uh, the Orbital Sciences platform is is uh, just going to go ahead and burn up, like similar to the uh, similar to the Progress. But uh, Dragon has the uh, uh, you know the down mass ability, so we'll have that back, and that's that's a good thing. Indeed. So again, that launch is scheduled for Saturday, May 19th, at 4:55 a.m. Eastern Time. So we'll have more for you on that next week when we'll have a show talking about some of the SpaceX things that Mark and I got for you. But now we're going to switch over to some shuttle retirement news. And we have a couple of things. The first one is that a couple days ago at the Kennedy Space Center, Space Shuttle Endeavor was powered up and powered down for the final time ever. Her power has been turned off and... Hopefully, she will be going to the California Science Center sometime towards the end of the year. Yeah, melancholy day. It signaled the essentially the end of uh, of Endeavor's era. She'll never be powered up again as a as a fully uh, as a fully powered up spacecraft. Uh, kind of ironic since it comes almost on the heels of a year ago, uh, around the same time her last mission, which carried up the uh, the alpha magnetic spectrometer. Uh, again, uh, a great way to close out her logbook, but uh, unfortunately, never to take to the skies again. Yep, so Friday, May 11th at 9.58 a.m., she was powered down, ending her 19-year career. She spent 299 days in space, over 25 missions. Also, in terms of shuttle retirement news, the Space Shuttle Enterprise was demated from the Shuttle Carrier Aircraft 747, currently in a hangar at John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York. And that will be going down the Hudson River to its new home at the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum in June and should be open to the public in a temporary display in July. What's really interesting about these exhibits is that the Smithsonian, as well as the Kennedy Space Center, have both of their projects entirely funded. However, the Intrepid, as well as the California Science Center, do not yet. So they have started a campaign to see if they can get more people to donate money and help fund the program. And each of them is taking to it a little bit differently. The (laughs) Intrepid Museum is going to use stars where you can donate a star. And as you donate more money for the star, you'll get more items that go along with it. For example, $250 will get you a star that will be displayed on the exhibit. If you donate more money, such as at the $5,000 level, it begins offering invitations to Enterprise events, including it being craned onto the flight deck, riding on a boat next to Enterprise on the Hudson River for $10,000, or for $25,000, you'll be invited to the opening of the Space Pavilion with visiting dignitaries. 
if you donate to the Endeavor display at the California Science Center, theirs is a little bit different. They will be doing tiles. Now, don't worry, they're not going to actually take the tiles off of Endeavor and replace them. They will have a model shuttle next to it with heat shield tiles with names engraved on it. On top of that, you'll also get gifts for $1,000. You'll get a limited edition gift. It increases as you go from $2,500 to $10,000. You receive priority viewing opportunities as well as event invitations and the chance to choose the location and personalize the message on the tile. And for $25,000, you will be permanently recognized on a donor wall. Yeah, to uh, just say, the, the, of course, the Smithsonian and, of course, uh, you know, the Delaware North and the uh, folks over at uh, the Kennedy Space Center, those projects are funded in part because we, the taxpayer, are essentially paying for them. We pay for everything that uh, – you know, the reason that's one of the reasons why the Smithsonian is free. It's part of our, our tax dollar. So every time you go to D.C. and walk into all those museums with all those fabulous – fabulous artifacts um that's the reason uh your your tax dollars are, are going into to help sort of fund all that indeed intrepid and uh, the california science museum are private entities and as such have to go ahead and go and whip up some rather interesting ways to to keep the uh, uh the funds flowing to make sure that these vehicles are preserved uh, I believe, sir, correct me if I'm wrong, Endeavor is going to be splay, displayed upright, no? And I think they're going to go ahead and, and have you know, a, a mock-up, well, actually, I think a real external tank and, and uh, a set of SRBs sort of flanking it, you know, as if it was sitting on a launch pad, no? Correct. Endeavor will be displayed vertically, paired with uh, solid rocket boosters and an external tank that the center is set to receive from NASA, according to a Space.com article. Right, and um, of course, uh, Enterprise will be temporarily be sitting on the flight deck for the Intrepid, and uh, eventually will be housed in a facility across the way from the from the uh, museum. No, ah, uh, that's what the current goal is. There's a parking lot directly across the street, and that's where they're hoping to do it. Okay. Just to note, if you are going to see the exhibit on the Intrepid, it will cost you an extra four to six dollars of admission. So there's the interesting facts about the retirement of the shuttle. Speaking of space shuttle retirement, we've been having a continuing segment now with Mark's trip down to the Kennedy Space Center for the departure of Discovery. We need to come up with a name for this segment, but in the meantime, Mark, what do you have for us this week? Well, believe it or not, uh, with everything I've talked about to date on the last couple shows, I'm still on the second day out of seven that I was at Kennedy Space Center. And the recording that I've got for you now was recorded on uh, April 11th, which was Wednesday. And the gentleman that you're going to hear talking along with myself, and I believe there's probably a, a few times where one of the other media folks interjects some questions because we were gathered around uh, listening to the flight engineer. But you're going to hear Larry LaRose. He's a NASA 905 shuttle carrier aircraft flight engineer. And I think you'll find what he's got to say interesting because it gives you a little bit of a glimpse inside that world that that we so excited uh, got to see on flybys and pictures that so many people took. But here's Larry LaRose, NASA 905 flight engineer. Do you get involved much with uh, like like actual routing of your flight? Uh, well, we get involved a little bit only for the fuel plan. In other words, yeah, we're involved with the routing because it affects us as, as a fuel plan. But, uh, but 
we, you know, the pilots and, and the weather folks that, that basically look at what we need to, to fly, and we just go by what they, and they tell us how long we need, and then we'll tell them how much gas we need. The weather, of course, is a, is a changing phenomenon. Oh, yeah. And no doubt you've well, had uh, routes change in, as, you're, as you're flying. Sure. And uh, there's been many times I've been on a mission, uh, not many, I, I, probably about three or four times. That, uh, in fact, right here, one time we were on short flight, and a range shot come right over the, uh, the approach into the runway. And we had to divert to Medill Air Force Base with our Pathfinder and all our maintenance here on the ground. We had to land over there without any support. So yeah, weather is, you know, it comes into play and, and, and we absolutely do not, under no circumstance, fly through any kind of rainstorm for that. Right. Henry was talking about your estimated takeoff weight that you'll have next week. Yeah, about 698 is what I'm here right now. And max is around? 710. Is I mean, that, 710 for takeoff, 713 for taxi. Is that typical for a ferry flight? Yeah, that, that is our limitation. That's our structural limitation is uh, 610. Uh, but because the, the orbiter weighs so much less, because a normal orbiter weighs about two, 215, 220, get up to 230, but this particular orbiter weighs 160,000 pounds, so it's about 40,000 pounds less. So that gives us an extra hour's worth of fuel, because we burn about 40,000 pounds of gas an hour. So when, when a normal operation, we wouldn't have that luxury. So our range would only be about two and a half to three hours, is, is max we could, depending on the weight of the orbit. But this is so light that we can put the additional weight uh, fuel on. That's where that's your right. increased weight comes from. Exactly. When you said the numbers, I thought, well, well gee, that sounds heavy. Because now we're putting that You're fuel, putting more fuel, putting more, and gives us more range to get out there and do the flybys and the things that they're Fly asking. By, flybys at this end, exactly. And up at DC. Exactly. Gives you flexibility. Where we would, where we would not have that capability if we didn't have that extra forty to fifty thousand pounds of weight. So that's where it comes from. What What do you uh, often hear when you're in the cockpit in flight? How does the uh, FAA air traffic control treat you guys. Are, oh, you, are, you, are, right, you, are you up? Are you right up there with like a life flight or a lifeguard uh, transport? Well, they're they're asking if we're carrying the shuttle, and then uh, we'll sell them yeah, and, and and so then that gets out on the airways, and, and American Airlines will say, well, "Where are they at?" And so then you know a, a, ATC will tell them where they're at and what altitude we're at. And, uh, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad, just depending on you know we don't want a lot of people coming over them. You know, They'll, they'll vector them in sometimes uh, to, to take a close look, or they'll kind of give them a, an, a, a one, two o'clock position where we're at, and sometimes they'll say, "Oh yeah, we got it." Uh, but yeah, we get we get pretty good handling, uh, and they do us a good job. I mean, that's good. I have we, no we understand that that uh, your, this flight from here to Dallas is uh-huh. nonstop, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. So. You know, you, one could make a case for developing some bu- additional publicity by making a couple of stops along the way. Right. We were speculating that that kind of adds a, a certain element of risk every oh, time sure you does. take because off and land. You, 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 if you've been around airplanes, the most critical phase of flight is takeoff and landings. Yeah. So if you can try to eliminate that, then, you know, you got a safer operation. And I would love for the PR stuff, I mean, because we get a lot of benefit out of it. Sure. But I also understand from the management side of the house and Smithsonian. They bought and paid for this thing, you know, they want it there to be safe and they don't want anything to go wrong with it. So they're the bosses and, yeah. they, and they dictate where we go to. And what, what about the flyby that you're going to do right. when you take off? I understand that there are uh, two different kind of routes depending right. upon whether you the only route take that off I'm, one way or yeah, the other. Yeah, and uh, basically we'll probably take off this way. We'll hook back. We'll go as far south as Melbourne, and then we'll hook it back and come back over the uh, the beach again, and then climb on out. And what's your altitude going to be when you do the flyby, roughly? 
I, I'm guessing about five thousand. Five thousand, maybe three. They might go down to three. I don't know. But right now, five thousand is usually you know kind of standard. So, do you expect that uh, some people are going to be out early in the morning uh, to to witness your flyby? Well, Will they see anything wait. besides a speck in the sky? Oh no, you'll see. I mean, I mean, it's just like when we bring an orbiter back from uh, Kennedy uh, for Edwards for landing. We basically, it's just been a tradition that we buzz the beach before we land. So yeah, yeah. we we get a. Good, and, and you know, with all this media, that word's going to get out, and it's going to be just sort of like a launch. I, mean, I don't anticipate seeing people on the causeway and the tollway and, and those areas where they're out there watching, ready for a launch. But I also, I'm looking for them to be on the beach you know, right. and watching. Now, uh, so my understanding too is you won't take off until you you're pretty darn confident the about the weather. Oh yeah, and the biggest biggest thing is 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 the weather at landing in Dallas because again. We can divert, you know, left or right, of course, uh, depending on where the weather's at. Uh, this this time also we're a little lighter with the rubber, so we can get a little bit higher, a little bit lower, depending on. So we have a little more maneuvering capabilities with a, a lighter orbit than what we did with a heavier weight orbit. And we're not restricted to the minus 10 or warmer. We can go up to altitude. Where when we had minus 10, like in the summer months, our max altitude was 15, 16,000 feet. So you can't get above it. But now... With us not having that, we don't have that restriction. So it gives us a little more flexibility. The biggest thing is is the landing weather. Yeah. Uh, we don't go through any rain. So you, may, so you may shake off and you may not. And you're right. You might, or just sit here and wait a couple hours yeah. if the front's pushing through. Just just, just a lot of variables. So, so, you know how weather is. So this is, this uh, the takeoff is scheduled for first so-called first light, Yeah, right? first light. Yeah. Now, so why so early? Well, it's a lot to do with the arrival time. Because again, what's the flight time? Well, it's about three hours. But but here's because we're talking about a heavily used airspace in DC. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like an air show. You almost got to close an airspace down a TFR and basically have a restricted area because they know you're coming in at that time to shut uh, the airspace down. Let let us do our flyby, then land, then bring it back up. And they don't want to keep the airspace down for any period of time. And it's even going to be worse in New York because it, that's even worse in D.C. Yeah. So that's kind of, you, you know what that's about. And, yeah. and airspace is critical. So some of us were speculating the reason it's scheduled for first light is because if the weather, you know, is bad, you've got all day to kind of wait, or at least part of the day to wait and see. There, there's two block times right now. One, one arrival time in the morning and then one in the afternoon. Oh, okay. and, and they'll look at it. But, again... So the FAA is pretty good with us too because if if we, if we give them enough advance notice, they might be able to move the block. Yeah. But gotta remember, it's like a snowballing effect. Is once you start pushing things, scheduled airliners don't seem to be able to make up time, okay, and it sure. just delays it. And so I see. I there, see. There's a there's a breaking point. Nope, we ain't gonna do no more, and that's and we have to abide by that. So is there a window for each one of those blocks, like an hour window? I, I believe it is, yeah, but I, right now it, it's above my pay level. I'm just, I just do the engineering and the flight planning. <laughs> you just, you and, just and, and, and I'll know about it at the weather briefing. When I go to the weather briefing, they'll they'll lay down our, our manifest and they'll lay down our flight plan. And they'll also tell us our holding times. And, and, and so we'll have a good idea so we can plan, put the fuel aboard that we know what we have to do. to. to and weather, when is the weather briefing? The weather briefing usually occurs three hours prior to the flight. Okay, so... Four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but there's there's other weather briefings before that. So if, for example, our, our mission managers do not have a crew duty day like we do, they'll go to that. And if 
they might make a real-time decision. We're not even going to alert the crew. We're, we're going to say we're, we're done. Yeah. And then once we get the uh, crew notification the next morning, don't even come in. We won't even come in. And suppose Monday doesn't work. Then does it Tuesday is when we're Tuesday doing. and then Wednesday right. and we'll until, just, whatever we'll it We'll just takes. do a slip as, as the weather goes by. Thank you very much. You yes, sir. A lot of coordination involved. Oh, you that. bet. Oh, yeah. You, it's just like any other thing. <laughs> and, and, you, and a lot of folks, you don't even know who you're impacting. And so you, you just... Just can't just arbitrarily say this is what we're going to do. Internally in the FAA, oh, yeah. I, I see. Where, oh, you know it. I see where we lose attaboys real quick. Oh, I hear even, you. Even with weather oh, and, and uh, airline delays that are just due to weather. I mean, we no lose, fault of your own. Yeah. yeah, nothing you can I've do about there. it. I've been there. Beautiful airplane. Thank you. Thank you. It is how, fun. How long do you uh, expect to continue to work with uh, with NASA? Well, I retired from NASA in 2008, so I'm a contract right now. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, but. I've been flying more than I did when I was uh, working for because when working for them, I used to be a manager, so I had to manage people and stuff. And so I had to sit behind a desk and I didn't get to fly. But now, I don't have to do anything. I just fly. So I fly more now than I did ever did. It's great. Thank you. No, thank you, sir. And the uh, next clip that I've got for you is the United Space Alliance Senior Aerospace Technician, Richie Van Wart. He worked for the space shuttle program since 1979, and he was there supporting MATE operations for discovery on the SCA. My name is Richard Van Ward. I'm a uh, AST a systems specialist on the MPS, which would be the main propulsion systems on the orbiters. Okay, so your your role here with loading and, or taking off, as the case has been in the past, the orbiters off the aircraft as well. Yes. Uh, our jobs out here are to load it to the 747 and take it off the 747. And as a, um, well, we have three areas, uh, forward, mid, and aft. I'm an aft technician that takes the sling off. We, uh, we uh, take it off the 747 on the, uh, and basically that stuff, the sling. We lower it to the ground or we lift it up. How concerned do you have to be with uh, structural forces and loads and how it's lifted and you know how you handle it once you start to take it up off the ground or off the aircraft is it pretty simple um it's simple in the design but to make sure that everything's hooked up correctly there's a lot of uh, adjustments fine tuning and uh, weights that we have to be concerned with because you don't want to lift it when you don't have your slings in the proper position for you know your load whether, whether it be with a payload or without a payload. Looking at the mate-demate device, I've never got a really up-close look at it before and seeing the, the cranes and the cabling and, and how it's hoisted, uh, does it move much when you pick the orbiter up? Does the orbiter move much? I mean, I mean, I mean vertically, yeah, but I mean, here we are, it's a bit of a windy day. But Yeah, but you can see the cables coming down from each side. That's our wind restraints so that it won't swing and move. Uh, your your uh, platforms move, but mostly you have wind restraints that keep it from moving. Okay. I wondered about that because I saw what the forecast was for Saturday, and I thought, gee, I wonder if gusts of 20 is anything to worry about. Uh, no, not I mean, you don't want it more. Once you start hearing the chains cling on the side, then you might have to worry about it, but everything's secure. How long have you been working uh, here with Space Center with the shuttle program? I started in 1979 when uh, Columbia rolled into the high bay 
green and uh, had foam all over it. And uh, I was a TPS mechanic then. I did thermal protection system stuff. And uh, over the years have gone through the process of becoming a vehicle technician where I went from the outside to the inside of the vehicle. It took a few years. Met, met some of your co-workers, uh, I believe back in September, the media day they had for Discovery where we got to go inside and around and, and look at her and know the F2, I guess it was. Yes. That was a very interesting day to see the aft compartment. Yes. Uh, we're, I work in the aft compartment and uh, people don't realize how much stuff is in there and uh, how, you know, it's a lot. I heard a description, and I, I kind of got a small idea, but if you're inside the orbiter with the engines installed, it, it gets even tighter in there, and you have to be careful how you move, I guess, right? Yes, we have some platforms that make it uh, safe to walk around, but, yeah, you have to be pretty nimble, pretty nimble, because everywhere you go, it's tight quarters, and um, a lot of important equipment that you, you can't walk on, you you don't want to bump, you don't want to, you know, damage it in any way because, you know, as you know, there's millions of systems that have to be checked out and go over and if you bang something or knock a connector loose or ding a line, you just, there's a lot, lot that can happen. Something like that, if you, if you dinged a, a line or, or took the wrong connector loose, then I guess that has to be, that would be checked and going to go through a whole process. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, yes. There's you uh, Where we work, uh, it's one of those, um, if anything happens, nobody's afraid to come up and go, hey, I did this or I did that. And once you write a report on it, it's double and tripled, and you there's so many people that come in, and you have so many people making sure it's done right. It's, but it's one of those, it's, you know, it's such a tight quarters. You just... But it's one of those where I feel very safe and, you know, and know that, you know, you don't have nothing to worry about. That's, that's the office. You're, you know where things are. You know what to do. Yes. Yes. And that's a little bit more of the folks that I've had the privilege to talk to in April. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a taste for what's ahead, I've got another shuttle tech that we'll be talking to or listening to the recording of in the future along with four of the transition and retirement shuttle program managers and also some astronauts and a little special treat that I'll probably save for a little bit later on that I think you'll like. So anyway, that's it for me. Real quick question for you, because uh, I recall in the first interview you were asking uh, some weather-related questions as far as uh, taking off and, and uh, flying in you know inclement in weather, basically rain. Uh, which you don't want to do with these birds. Is that to go ahead and protect the tile? Yeah, that was for tile. Didn't specifically ask that question, but best I remember, that was, I think one of the uh, crew, might have been the engineer, made the statement. He says, yeah, we lose our jobs if we fly into rain. I was wondering, too, I could just picture the uh, ATC over at um, uh, Newark Airport when Enterprise flew by because <laughs> uh, it, it was nowhere near there. And I could just picture, uh, yeah, you want, you guys want to fly by over here, you know, and just all that, because apparently it does get a lot of, you know, I mean, shoot, you, it's it's nothing. You, it's something you don't see every day. And, and to see these two vehicles kind of sort of connected up to each other is just, wow, it's just an awesome sight. You know, having seen Enterprise fly in, 
uh, about uh, clearing the the uh, the air the airspace ahead. Is that what they would have to do? You know, they have to go ahead and get a special air corridor for. Uh, if if they were going to fly fly this thing, like for instance, it, you know, I would guess Endeavor is going to be even more complicated later on, where they have to go ahead and get a get a special air corridor for this thing to to fly all the way to California. Correct? Uh, you know, because that's that's what I was left with the impression of the 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 gentleman was saying it's almost like trying to clear the air corridor for an air show. Right. When they get into, uh, for instance, takeoff at at Cape Kennedy or the approach to Dulles or the approach to um, New York. Uh, they really literally had to, I'm sure, shut down the airspace. And as far as what normally happens on a ferry flight, uh, Pathfinder is, I believe, flying out ahead of them. And they're kind of probing and looking ahead for weather. Of course, both aircraft are, are monitoring weather with their own radars and instruments and, and talking to air traffic. But, um, you know, it's it's unusual to have an aircraft flying cross-country that's uh, that size aircraft flying at relatively low altitudes. And so they literally, I think, would uh, deviate to go around clouds and to do some non-standard things. So they do kind of uh, probably give them a little bit more of a, a buffer around the aircraft than uh, than perhaps they would, you know, your typical civilians. And that's just because they pretty much expect that uh, there may be some, you know, off normal, off-nominal type deviations that the pilot will request. I'll have to look into that. I don't know if I can find somebody. I live in small town North Florida, but it'd be interesting to talk to somebody from the air traffic side of the world, and I'll uh, I'll do some checking on that. It'd probably take me a little while to run down the right people, but I'll see what I can find out. One question I have to ask, Mark, and I don't know if this is just somebody's idea of a, of a joke, but uh, you were talking with the gentleman that was in sort of in charge of making sure these two vehicles kind of meet together properly. Uh, there is on one of the connection points on uh, the 747, I believe it's there. There's a uh, there's a little notation on there saying, you know, you know, orbiter mounting area, you know, black and up. Is that somebody's idea of a joke? That or, was a jo- that that was a joke. That's not really there. That was something that somebody just put up in a gag, and they took a picture of it. And okay. that was a that was a question one of the press asked the one of the flight engineers that we've that we talked to, and and he said, no, 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 we don't we don't have that's not on there. Okay, I, I didn't think so. <laughs> that kind of clears some. I always but, thought that that was kind of a Photoshop thing, but I was just wondering. Yeah, that's a good one though. Got to yeah. admit. Again, Mark, thanks a bunch. I can't wait to hear the hear the rest of this. This is fantastic stuff. Thanks. Indeed. Can't wait to hear more from you and uh, looking forward to that. So sticking with Shuttle for a little bit, we have a listener question that was sent in to us this past week. Uh, the listener who sent that in was Joe Haverthier, so thank you for sending in the question. And his question was relating to engines. His question is this, uh, quote, I know NASA saved the Space Shuttle main engines from the shuttle program to use in the Space Launch System. However, the SSMEs were designed for reusability. Once the finite SSMEs are up and are laying in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, what is the SLS going to use? J2X engines or a modified Space Shuttle main engine with one-time use design? If so, what are they going to be called? SSME version 2, SLS engine, and which has better thrust? So basically, where is the most bang for the buck? 
Gene, can you help me out a little bit on this one? Because both you and I have been doing some research on this. Yeah, we both kind of sort of did our homework as soon as we saw this story, and I want to thanks, say thanks for uh, for bringing the uh, the note to my attention. Uh, well, the, the the quick answer is that the uh, the RS-25 engine, which is essentially the space shuttle main engine, would continue to be uh, put into production, so I assume, even though that the uh, the it's compatriots are lying on the bottom of the Atlantic. Uh, the J-2X engine, as far as I know, is only scheduled to be used um, for the upper stage of the uh, Space Launch System, or SLS. So I don't think the J-2X is going to come into play as far as the core stage is concerned. Now, I do know, and Sawyer, I think we, we you and I kind of sort of talked to the, about this during pre-show because you kept on finding information about another engine, the RS-68, which was under development by, uh, by Pratt & Whitney as well. And uh, RS-68 was actually planned um, for the uh, for the Ares 5 and was supposed to be used also if uh, the direct concept was going to be put together. Um, but the entire proposal switched over to the, uh, the space shuttle main engine or, or the RS-25. RS so uh, that is going to continue to be the workhorse apparently for the SLS. So if you have any more info on that, I'd appreciate you sharing it for us. Not really much more. I mean, the big thing was just taking a look at the price of the engines, where the space shuttle main engines each cost about 40 to $50 million each. So the big thing, of course, is the cost. The original RS-68s they were talking about, they were thinking they could possibly get those down to $14 million. However, not sure about that, but the new engines that they were talking about, they believed they could get down to about $30 million. So they're trying to cut the price down on it. Yeah, you know that that I guess is <laughs> right now the the paramount thing. Uh, but uh, they decided to go ahead and go with the tried and true SSMEs or RS twenty five engines, and those will continue to be uh, be used for SLS. So again, the space shuttle program may be over, but the lessons that we've learned from it are still going to be carried over into uh, into the uh, coming programs. I will go ahead and you know, make sure that uh, this is all correct. But uh, you know, as far as I know, as far as my digging around, um, that, that's what I was able to find out. So again, thank you, Joe, for sending in that question. And you can send in your questions, and we'll be happy to answer them. He suggested doing a question and answer segment. We'd be happy to do it, but we need you to send us some questions. You can send those on stories or any other questions that you have. You can send them to us at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. Or you can go to the Contact Us page on our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com, like Joe did, and send in your questions for us. You can type them up or send them as an audio MP3 file. Alrighty then, we're going to continue along with the story about uh, some more space junks on our Space Junk Podcast, as we nickname it. <laughs> yeah, it looks that way, sir, unfortunately. Um, there's always some, some new uh, piece of space debris to talk about. Unfortunately, this one's a huge one. Um, an environmental s satellite called Invasat that was launched by the European Space Agency uh, has suddenly gone quiet. This is a satellite that is, I mean, it's huge. It's about 16 feet wide, 46 feet long, uh, weighs 17,600 pounds. Uh, so it's not a, not a small, uh, small vehicle. 
Um, it was sent up, I believe, you know, this was a, supposed to be a five-year mission for it. It was actually extended. Um, so uh, ESA has indeed gotten its bang for its buck out of it. The satellite, I believe, uh, according to an article I'm looking at here from Popular Science, cost about $2.9 billion to, uh, to construct. And again, it has been taking uh, high-res images of the Earth from, from above us and, and sending that data back down to, uh, to Earth. Uh, but back on uh, April 8th, it kind of, well, its luck kind of ran out. It basically went dead. Uh, by all practical purposes, from what ESA has been able to uncover thus far, it seems to have gone into safe mode, and it can't be kicked out of safe mode. Uh, they've tried several things and unfortunately have declared the satellite dead. Uh, don't worry about uh, any re-entry possibilities for the time being. Uh, you're not going to be looking at a URs or a Phobos grunt type situation here. Um, it looks like it's in a relatively stable orbit that will bring it down in, um, oh, about 150 years. So I think we've got some time to go ahead and prepare either that or who knows. We might even go up there and rescue it at some point. I was going to say, for right now, they're just going to leave it up there? Yeah, there's really nothing you can do. It's just sort of just let it drift. I mean... Yeah, it's it's in a relatively stable orbit right now. You know, if if you know if you don't want to mess with it at this point, but uh, you never know. I mean, technology may advance where we might be able to bring the thing back down. Who knows? In in 150 years, so um, you know, right now there's really no need to panic, no need to worry. You, we've got about 150 years to figure this one out. Alrighty then, and we're gonna finish this off here with. An interesting story about the asteroid Vesta, or is it an asteroid? That's the question, right? Yeah, the the Dawn spacecraft that's been sort of orbiting uh, this particular asteroid, quote, close quote, has been out there uh, for quite some time. The asteroid Vesta is about maybe, oh, the size of uh, <laughs> the state of Arizona, and uh, the Dawn spacecraft has been analyzing it and seeing what's what what it's comprised of and so on. And there was an interesting uh, announcement that was made uh, this past week about about Vesta that it is not really an asteroid, but geologists theorize that this is actually a protoplanet, meaning that this was a body that was starting to form into a planet at some point. And we would have had a you know a, a terrestrial planet out toward the asteroid belt there, but I think that the gravity of Jupiter kind of you know screwed things up a little bit, and uh, this thing just did not form into a planet. So in essence, you're looking at a Rosetta Stone for the early solar system, and so there's about six scientific papers out there that are going to be published about uh, the dawn, the dawn findings. Uh, we'll be looking around around for that and uh, coming back at you with some more information about that. But the preliminaries show that, again, Vesta is not really an asteroid, but it's a protoplanet. So it, we, and it could indeed tell us about the uh, history of the very early solar system and how our, our planet actually formed. Yeah, but th there's been some uh, people questioning the actual naming of it as a protoplanet. In specific, uh, Mike Brown, who on Twitter goes as at PlutoKiller, uh, he talked about it um, in a very interesting way. 
uh, about how he actually compared it. Well, yeah, I mean, he, I, I, I remember seeing, you know, it's it's made out of rock. Well, Earth's made out of rock too, and he says head head, you know, head head pound on desk. Right, banging um, my head on that rock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so again, whatever the findings are, it still has to go ahead and and stand the 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 test of 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 scrutiny. And that's the way science works. It's sort of a self-correcting process. And it's good that uh, Mike Brown went ahead and pushed that forward and said, yeah, that's that's what it should be. I talked with uh, briefly with uh, uh, Dr. Catherine Crawford about that on, on Twitter. And she was saying, yeah, you know, you might want to go ahead and take, take a look, look at that. And uh, she was the one who actually pointed out uh, uh, Dr. Brown's comments to me and – uh, she basically said that uh, you, know, you might want to go ahead and take a look at this, and I believe a discussion between um, he and uh, Dr. Phil Plate was sort of going back and forth on Twitter. So it was it was kind of lively to to watch that. Uh, but again, this is why you know science is a self-correcting process. So that data is going to have to go ahead, be looked at by everybody, and go through you know the rigors of scrutiny, just as any other scientific finding finding uh, has to do. And if it comes out the other end, you know, relatively unscathed, then you've got your answer. But you know, if modifications have to be made, so be it. And that's the that's the cool thing about science. It, it, again, it's a self-correcting process. Indeed. I'm honestly not sure what my stance is on this. I've been reading multiple opinions, but it's interesting. It's always neat to hear a unique classification, especially a protoplanet, considering how few there still are. I believe they're saying that this could be the only one that is still out there, uh, at least from what I recall um, hearing uh, through the, the press conference results. So, uh, you know, again, um, interesting find. Uh, from from the uh, from dawn, dawn is going to move on to series, and uh, we'll see what that body has to uh, has to reveal to us. Alrighty then, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always fun, Sawyer. Thanks a bunch. And thank you as all for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Lots of goodies. See you all next week. And Mark, I'm so looking forward to the next set of clips. Seriously, that's this. This has been a, a really cool series. I appreciate all the hard work you did in putting that all together. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. Indeed. Next week we'll have some great uh, goodies for you regarding SpaceX and hopefully a launch. But regardless, we will be here next week, and we hope you will too. So until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Mm-hmm.